Hello and welcome to Sports Best Friends, Stories, a podcast that is maturing and making the most of the off-season. My name is Big T and sitting patiently across from me is a man who has written more books on sport than I have seen rugby league grand finals. He was a journalist in a time when there were two daily tabloid newspapers in Sydney and each produced two editions a day and when reporters didn't have to worry about clickbait. He was also the editor of Rugby League Week in the 80s and so was recently entrusted to help enrol the latest class of immortals. In fact, Peter Sterling said, when it comes to rugby league books, Ian Heads writes them better than anyone else. Welcome, Ian Heads. Thank you very much, Charles. Great to be here. Was all that true? My Um, internetting is... Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. (laughs) I was very kind of uh, Sterling to say what he said. Yeah, I thought about doing a Sterling impersonation, but then I thought doing better (laughs) off it. That was Uh, actually the first book I did. The uh, first uh, biography of a player was Peter Sterling. Yeah, and I was going to say Sterling would say that about you, considering you wrote a book about him, so (laughs) it's glowing praise of himself while growing praise of you. Yeah, no, he's a good man. He's he's conducted his life well, and he was a very great player. And he's such an excellent mind still to this day. He's he's easily my favourite commentator in terms of colour, like giving insight and things like that. That is unreal. He's good, yeah. Now, do you get to spend a lot of time with players when you're writing books about them? Yeah, heaps of time, actually. Um, the various um, books I've done on league, and I think I've done about 30 or something. Wow. Um, it does involve, I like to do things, you know, thoroughly, and they do as football players, they do the same thing, you know. Right. But to spend time with them is to, is to be able to dig beneath the surface and find out um, uh, stories behind the story, that sort of thing. I always remember with the uh, I did Arthur Beetson's book some years ago, and Arthur... We did it. We worked in a small office at my home, in the back of my home. One of my great memory, Martha, is, Arthur, is him. My wife would bring a cup of tea and numbers of large numbers of chocolate biscuits, and <laughs> Arthur would have his tea, and the biscuits would somehow disappear. You know, <laughs> right. I sense he sort of absorbed them. Right, know? right. He did like a chocolate biscuit. And do you get to choose? How does how does that process work? Do you do you pr- approach them? Do they approach you? Um, well, the approach. <coughs> Bit of, bit of both. Right. Uh, quite a few of them, have, I suppose, has been for me. If I see a, uh, you know, identify a player who I think is a guy I know has got a colourful story and is to, can tell it, um, I tended to make the approach. Um, and I was from a sort of, of a lot of the players that I covered, I was either from their generation or a little bit earlier, so they knew that I'd been in the business a while. So yeah. there, was, there was, you know, a bit of harmony there, which was good. Okay. And then if, if you were going to have a book written... About you and your work, which player would you get to do that? Ah, well, that's a tough question. I'd have to offer to Sterlo, I suppose. He yeah. <laughs> said, said those nice things. But uh, he's the sort of bloke who would do a good job. He's got a very sharp mind. and uh, uh, But he, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty around who could do it. You know, I'm impressed with, uh, uh, I thought Ben Eichen was a good player and I think he does a good job too as a yeah. uh, commentator, you know. Um, uh, younger generation bloke who's got a really sharp sharp mind on the game. But there'd be a whole lot of them could do it, and some of them might even have stories about me that I wouldn't <laughs> like told. Right. Now, you started journalism in the 1960s. Who were you barracking for at the time? Well, I grew up with eastern suburbs who were then the tricolours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in Sydney's eastern suburbs in, with my grandmother and mother in a rented house and with a mate of mine. We used to go and watch uh, East play at the sports ground or cricket ground. So, um, you know, they were, my, they were my team, but I found as the years went by... I grew more into the middle ground because um, to be a sports writer, I think you have to be try and be objective. Mm-hmm. There's still that bit of passion there in the background, probably. But um, <laughs> so I had, um, you know, I, I remember writing a column once about the the sense of the dressing room, but the different feeling in each dressing room after a game. Right. The different clubs, which to me, I tried to 
sort of interpret that as what, what it meant about that club. You yeah, know, whether yeah. a friendly, so North Sydney, for example, who could, didn't win a premiership after 1922, mm. were the friendliest club ever. Really? As soon as you walked in the door, there'd be a beer and um, uh, generally warm greetings. It was a really nice harmony. And what did you suggest then about that? How, what, what did you then suggest? that there are, They didn't win grand finals. They were very friendly. Did you make a... Um, nothing. That I, just that it was a bit sad to see them out of the competition because, every, because they hadn't won since 1922 during the era when I covered the game. There was always this sense of expectation, you know, going right. to the 60s and 70s that this might be the year, you know, North. Mm. It was like a fairy tale thing, you know, because they'd always, you know, they'd, they'd always have a big forward coming down from somewhere and a halfback from somewhere, you know, and they kept... They lived on hope the whole time, and then they got bumped out. In the, and is that uh, why you'd say then this, they were so happy and in, in inviting into the, into the rooms then because they had that constant hope and um, yeah, and they were proud of their history. Okay, and they had um, uh, interesting leadership, sort of old style leadership, but good people who um, saw the game as a sort of a shared experience for all sides of it, journalists, uh, you know, players, etc. No, they were good. You know, and other clubs had a happy um, dressing rooms, but there were some that started to get a bit serious and a bit uh, more professional as the years went on, you know, who were to the point that I don't think players go, uh, press people go into the dressing rooms anymore. Yeah. It's, well, the, the press corps is probably too big, you know. Right. So they have press conferences afterwards. But we were very welcome in the dressing room and we made the decision as a group, the press blokes, and I was with Mike Gibson and Ernie Christensen and some of the great blokes, that because we knew how hard that game was uh, and I got to learn it, I'll explain that very briefly in a sec, but... Um, that uh, we, we gave them breathing space after a game. We'd right. give them 15 to 20 minutes. We wouldn't go into the dressing rooms because we knew how hard they, what had just happened out on the paddock was, right. you know. So that, that was respected, I think. So, But we were always welcome. Like, you'd have a beer and have a, cha- have a chat to the, all players if you wanted to. Wow. But, um, yeah, I learned about as a cadet journalist when I was out covering er- er- the early... Uh, in the early years, and I used to go to get grounds like Henson Park and mm-hmm. um, Pratton Park and then sit on the sideline... And you get a great sense of just how tough that game is. You right. know, the smack of the tackles and the um, the cries of pain and whatnot. You know, you knew they were playing a bloody hard game. And, yeah. Um, wow. So I, was, I always respected them for that. You know, and I I think uh, the modern press, to some extent, miss out mm-hmm. because they're uh, they tend to watch from behind glass. Um, they don't get that sense of atmosphere. And I did suggest once to the league that they should now and then get a young journalist and get them go and sit on the sideline and just watch a couple of games there. Mm. Because there was was an inclination in some press boxes I went into, blokes to make jokes about players, you know, or he's he's a bit of a cat or he's something. They're not. If you play that game, you've got courage. You can't be a cat anywhere on that field. No way. Even on the bench. You can't hide, no. No way. Now, did you get, speaking of cadetship then, did you get much time before you were a journalist to, to watch a lot of games? Were your family a big... Rugby league family? Uh, well, no, they weren't. But I, I had a <coughs> sort of lucky break, I think, in um, uh, right at the end of the war years, 1950, when two uncles of mine took me to the Sydney Cricket Ground to see probably one of the most famous matches ever played here, which was the deciding test between um, Australia and Great Britain in mud about that deep. Wow. And the, and the Sydney Cricket Ground, we stood at the back of the Cricket Ground hill and watched the match and they were just muddied figures going up and down. But there was a great, um, I still remember the occasion, the great uh, excitement after the game. Australia won that and they then won the Ashes for the first time in 50 years. Wow. So it was a, um, a thrilling experience to be there and I can still see all the hats being thrown into the air yes, afterwards. Yes, yes. You know, the, uh, the cheering that went on. But um, So I think that put maybe <laughs> sowed a seed in me, you know, and that was, um, 
And for into the fifties, uh, I with this mate of mine, George Craig, and we started to tour the city, following East, and uh, okay. generally getting beaten. Balmain usually beat him. Good Keith, to hear. Keith Barnes would kick about oh, twelve yeah. goals or something. <laughs> <you know>? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. And so, uh, uh, excuse my ridiculousness, but the idea every time I see crowds with hats at the watching football it makes me so excited. What what decade ish did that stop happening? Um, I'd say probably. Into the 50s, probably later on in the 50s, but hard for me to remember that. It's yeah. not the sort of thing I noticed. And you know, it's not I, a fashion podcast either, really. So. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. But around about then, I think, you know, okay. I used to sit on the hill at the sports ground, which was a lovely ground to watch footy, you know. Yeah. You're pretty close to the game and uh, you felt part of it almost. Only problem with the sports ground was that they ran uh, east-west. Yeah. So in the second half, someone would be running into the setting <laughs> the sun, sun, which was yeah. a bit of a trick. <laughs> and, and everyone else was wearing hats except for the poor players. That's right. Yeah. I might try and bring it back. I think if we have it, there's a lot of games being played at the cricket ground. I think next season, Easts, I think, are, are taking their games there. Well, the S, S, the S, they do. Yeah, good. And so maybe I'll try and wear one of those old style hats just for the the, think, the magic think, and nostalgia. I think you should. Yeah. Um, so you said it was just your uncles that were taking you to games. Did they take you a lot, or just you just no, remember? No, I that just first, remember just that, that once. One? I think they may have taken me to an East game in the early fifties, but I don't remember that. But I certainly remember the Test match and uh, written about it many times over the years. You know. Very famous game. And so then, so the, really the, 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 the large amount of games you end up saying to watch are when you're writing about them. It's not beforehand. Um, no, I saw quite a lot beforehand. Okay. Yeah, because I didn't go into, um, I finished school in 1960. It came out in um, 1960. It was my first year out. Mm-hmm. But I, in that period leading up to there, through the 50s, I was a regular traveller on trams and uh, buses and things around the city watching Easts, who had always had a very competitive side. It never looked like winning a comp in that time. But yeah. Um, they still had some great colour about them. They had probably the player who's my probably nearly my favourite player of all time, and a bloke, if I'm, I'll mention his name now, and most people would never have heard of him, Tony Paskins, who was a genius fullback who played in England and was regarded as an absolute superstar over there. Right. Came back and played a couple of seasons with East with another player, and was just unbelievably a brilliant player, centre or fullback, and. Uh, Extremely gifted player. He should have captained Australia. Wow. He captained country to beat City a couple of times. Would have been Australian captain, I think, but he got hurt, so he never was. Oh. And so that's during the 60s. And so by the yeah. time you then... Well, 50. He, he was back in the 50s, oh, in the 50s. actually. the 50s. Oh, right. And then into the early part of the 60s, right. yeah. Mm. And so you said before that you you were mm. an East fan, but you felt like you had to go to the middle because of journalism. Have you, have you edged your way back there? I'm hoping that, I mean, 75, 74... East win the comp. How are you feeling at that stage? Yeah, no, I, 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 I felt really good for them then, yeah. <laughs> but it never, them, never right. quite the same beating, you know, excitement of East perhaps winning a match in the 50s. That was probably right. more exciting in a way. Right. But by that, by the time of East's great run, I, I had a fair bit to do with Jack Gibson, you know. I was yes. fairly close to Jack. And uh, so I was very happy for him. And I was happy for the club, a professional club with good players. And uh, yeah. So, yeah, I got a thrill out of that for sure. And so now that you, you've been out of newspapers for a while, mm. have you felt... Like you've drifted back to East, so you still feel like you're now you're set in this neutral zone. I'm, I'm probably more in the neutral zone now, but I, yeah, okay. I still have a soft spot for uh, East. And funnily enough, I've got a bit of a, I've got a soft spot. Well, I've got a soft spot for a few clubs. So yes. I'm better not rattle them all off. But I, I've written, I <laughs> wrote uh, South's um, mm-hmm. history, and I enjoyed my contact with the Churchill and those players that were at South. So such a famous club, you know. Yeah. I felt they were very special. You know, so I've always had a and I wrote George Piggins' book later, and I George I admire George greatly, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've got a, but um, no, I, I, you know, I had friends probably at all the clubs, 
because they were, I was trying to do my best and they were trying to do their best yeah. and we uh, sort of intersected. But um, yeah, I was happy to see the um, tricolours as I remember them this year. The rest <laughs> yeah. is, that, yeah. they played very well to win the comp. Those That's last certainly. couple of games yeah. were good, terrific. Yeah. And so do you get to go to many games now? Um, I don't go to so many. Uh, my wife and I go to the Anzac Day match every year. Okay, um, That's one we go to. But um, occasionally I... Um, I don't get invited to much, but I'm not, I'm not bothered about that. I've had my turn, you know, but if I want to go to a game, I'll go. But I don't. I, I find um, watching, uh, particularly from the really big stadiums, from Anzac, uh, the um, Olympic Stadium, I find that hard. You mm. know, you're a long way from the action. Mm. I remember going to a game there. Not, I did go to one game there last year, I think, but I, um, and it was a gloomy sort of a night. And I, I was sitting talking to people and that sort of thing, but I watched the game. And afterwards, we were such a long way away, right up high there, I had the sense that I wouldn't have known who, which individuals played well. I couldn't yeah. have identified that. Yeah. Whereas if you watch on television, you do. You know, you yeah. you get a you know you see more, don't you? Well, people at matches spend half their time looking at the screen. Probably <laughs> that's probably true. Yeah. yeah, or in the line for a beer. And, that, yeah. and so, would you say then, if we, is there a, if we changed away from that and back to local suburban grounds, would that be something that might get you back, or you feel like you're happy now? Uh, I'm in a pretty good pretty good zone now i'm happy to mainly to watch it on television i'm happy to go to league events and if i can contribute in ways i do yeah. but i've uh as i said i had a pretty i had a pretty good innings in and around the game mm-hmm. and i had a bit of ill health in recent years which probably uh, which is from fine now good as gold but um i've uh, just gone into a slightly different zone in my life yeah. but i'm still extremely fond of the game and i yeah. always was you know and your wife's bringing teas and huge numbers of chocolate biscuits. Um, also, <laughs> it would be hard to leave the house with Absolutely, someone doing yeah. that. <laughs> I think there's a few players that might have benefited from that over the years because <laughs> the uh, interview process, as I said, was um, was a lengthy one inevitably because sometimes the smaller things that come out become the big, you know, yes. the eye-catching pieces in the book. Okay, so let's just imagine then that you you are going to go next year to the Anzac Test, for example. Mm. If you could choose anyone... Um, to go to a game with, to sit down and watch a game with, who would you choose? Ah, that's a great question, actually. I did see you had that down there and I was starting to think about it. Um, You know, if if I could pick to have um, Jack Gibson on one side of me and Ron Massey on the other, I know I'd have a highly entertaining and (laughs) enlightening afternoon and a great deal of wisdom would flow across, you know. So those two, but I'm... Particularly, I feel particularly close to players of the year of Noel Kelly and, uh, uh, you know, the, the Johnny Roper, who's not so good now, um, and Harry Wells and those type of players. are very comfortable in their company. And I found them very relaxed. Noel Kelly's another one who did Noel's book, but he's mm. very um, uh, great characters of the game. You know, it's a shame if the game lets those pe- players descend too far. I don't know whether it looks after them well enough. And they don't not looking after it in financial sense. But they're part of the fabric of it, yeah. You know? And they, some of them are wonderful. In, you know, they have there's wonderful stories woven around those blokes. You know, mm. and they shouldn't be forgotten. It's a rather now. It's a very now focused world we live in. I That's understand right. that. You know, but I think it's important that the, that that history and particularly the colourful parts of that history is uh, retained. Yeah. Know? Well, do you feel like that the game at the moment, particularly with Peter Beattie and Todd Greenberg, that there is a there is a shift in the NRL trying to claim a lot more of its history and trying to and trying to look at it and and hold on to it more so than maybe five ten years ago. Um, yeah, I do actually. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I think they're probably heading on the right track. I haven't had that much to do with Todd, but I've been fairly impressed with his handling of the Immortals thing. When yeah, the, 
we reached a point where you had to make a decision. The committee were looking at uh, including those older players, which which we did in the end. But yeah. um, he didn't flinch. He just went outside with a couple of his people and came back and said, well, that's what we've got to do. You know, he didn't want to resist that at all. Yeah. So I think he's, you know, he's on the right track. And uh, I don't know about Peter Beattie. I've not met him, but okay. um, I certainly wish him well. And the game needs to be, you know, well-led. It's always yeah. been a tough game to handle because there's some some strong blokes in it, some, mm. uh, you know, pretty um, prickly characters and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and I, I tasted that in my early years. One of my early jobs was going to the Monday Night League meeting at Phillips yeah. Street, which yeah. was a, a very um, – um, was a, an education really, but <laughs> – be a pretty tough night because they'd all have plenty of beers beforehand and there'd right. be fierce arguments. Mm. <coughs> there were fisticuffs occasionally. Wow. Um, and uh, they had a couple of tough presidents, Jersey Flegg and Bill Buckley, who, yeah. who could handle that. But um, it was, it's never been easy to handle rugby yeah. league. You know, it's a fractious beast, I think. Those, in fact, I, I remember, I'm going to tell one of your stories. I remember you, in the book that you wrote about um, the, the 69 grand final where Humphreys, I think, who's who's the chairman of the Tigers at the time, goes to that meeting and it looks like everyone's going to complain about how much the Tigers have been laying down in the grand final. And the first thing he says when he gets there is, "We've got to look. We've got to do something about these people laying down in the kind of, yeah. during the grand." Yeah. And so everybody was up, oh, nothing to do. Then and he, you know, he'd kind of yeah, put talk it about to bed. getting in early. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was fantastic. Yeah, he was a, he was a smart operator. Yeah. very good on his feet. He's probably one of the best um, orators the game's ever had. He's right. very good off the cuff orator. A strong leader, but he, you know, he fell on his sword in the end, and that mm. that was um, a shame in some ways. But um, but he was he in, his, in his time there, he was, he was seen as the um, he was known as the boy wonder when he took right. over the job, you know, and he was sort of like that. He was a breath of fresh air and confident bloke and all that. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> anyway. Yeah, those meetings sound intense. Mm. I would have chosen as well Jack Gibson because you've written four books about him. So I want to quickly talk about him if we can. Um, so you'd know, you know a lot about him. Um, how would you distinguish him from others, particularly present-day coaches? Well, I think there's elements of uh, Jack in some of the coaches, in um, Bellamy and certainly the Broncos coach. in uh, Bennett. Yeah, Wayne Bennett. Um, because Jack um, was a pioneer, really. You know, mm-hmm. he setting off on the, the trip, he, you know, that he did of looking into uh, winning sport in other countries, particularly, when, you know, in... Um, American football. Mm. Um, he had a really questing mind, Jack. You know, he was a um, fascinating bloke to sit with. He'd be always be surrounded by dogs. He had loved dogs. <laughs> really? Oh, he thought dogs were wonderful. You know, yeah. he said the great thing about dogs is, and he had these big, um, uh, I mean, it's different types, but very large dogs actually. But so the great thing about them, if you go out ten times during the day, when you come back ten times, they'll be happy each time. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't think humans were like that. <laughs> right. But the thing about Jack, I think the reason that he uh, – and he had a sort of mysterious presence about him, Jack. Didn't say much. Yeah. Really spare with his words and with a reputation as a, as a hard man, which he was. I mean, he moved around the darker side of Sydney life a bit, Jack. Mm. People knew that and a particularly tough player on the field. In fact, a um, couple of the blokes from East who played in that era when Jack played, he said even St George would leave – they'd leave uh, – who, who had a – their Incredible. way of winning was yeah. getting physically over the top of teams, you know, yeah. but they'd leave Jack alone. They weren't going to go anywhere near prod him. Jack, you mm. know. And a, a very, very tough bloke, Jack, a hard-nosed sort of a bloke, but a good bloke with um, – yeah, I liked him heaps and I thought he had a big influence on the game because he wanted his players to conduct themselves properly off the field. Mm. He wanted no dirty stuff on the field. He wouldn't have a good countenance that. He dropped players, you know, if they did something 
on the field. He didn't want that. He yeah. just wanted them to be good athletes. And so he was very moral, and really, in his approach to rugby league, I think. And um, when you look at the great characters of the game, he's right up there. You know, mm. he's one of the. Um, and what do you then see about <laughs> about him and Craig Bellamy or, or Bennett, as you mentioned before? Um, similar qualities, I think. Um, the players are though. I think with with the great coaches, and I've struck a few in different sports. You know, Don Talbot comes to mind in swimming. I covered right. swimming for years, but he. Uh, there's a hardness about those blokes, and the players are a bit wary of them, you know. And I reckon that's part of it. You know, they they don't want to. They wouldn't play up too much. Right. They wouldn't certainly would hope not to play up too much in front of one of those play in one of those sort of coaches, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's respect that's that's um, that's sort of earned, I suppose, by the the way that you know Jack was certainly. I mean, he had that reputation as being a hard man, which he was. But um, and the others are a bit like that, I think. Yeah. Me and. Uh, they're intelligent mm. blacks. They're very thorough in preparation. You know, they surround themselves with good people. Yep. I think that's part of it too. Mm. Um, so Jack remains probably the model just about, you know, for uh, the beginning of learning, you know, winning coaching. I think Jack Gibson, even those books, which are mainly just collections of things that he'd gathered, you know, he's a great bow bird, Jack. <laughs> gathered all these things from everywhere. You right. know? <laughs> I'd go there and he'd have another thousand of them, and I'd, you know, yeah. <laughs> think, is, is this never going to end, you know? Yeah. But um, it, it, that's what the quest for looking for the answers you know yeah. that's what he was on about and he i mean he brought back the the name jets right he came back and coached newtown and brought that from america when he was there with mm. the new york jets and i think even brisbane took their uh, logo the broncos from the denver broncos so a lot of that even yeah. today is et- echoing through his trip yes. and his time terry fernley who went with him was a man of similar intellect and uh, approach to football a great fellow terry and uh should have won a premiership, almost did with Parramatta. Didn't quite, but they played for East. Tough forward with Jack. Mm. But he, he was he and Jack were a bit, you know, they, they bounced off each other a fair bit. Terry's always part of that story f- right. for me. You know, he was uh, he cared about the game and he wanted players to be good citizens and all that stuff, you yeah. know, but he was a good football coach too. And do you think um, Gibson <laughs> would be successful now if, if, if he was in this modern-day NRL against Trent Robinson, against... Um, Bennett against. Yeah, I do, I do, because I think he again, knowing Jack, he'd surround himself with good people, right? Uh, and he'd still be that air, that air of authority that existed. Yeah, I'd have no reason to think that he wouldn't succeed, yeah. you know. Uh, and I mean, I think you, I think that book. I keep realizing that I'm just about to say something, and it's only because I've read you what you've written about it. It happens to me over and over again. But he was he was obsessed with defence and and did that thing with the tackling mm. the the tyres and things like that. And really, that's how Trent Robinson's wrists just got there was is by tackling themselves to death. And yeah. so I guess his model then yeah is still working now. And yeah, Jack was strong on the defensive side of it. He wanted them to get that right first, basically. Mm. Um, uh, he bought out those machines too, remember? the Nautilus machines. <laughs> yeah. that, so they all got pretty pumped up, the players. But he then sort of was a good enough coach to re- release the brakes on them to, to, to the point those teams of the 70s were dashing teams with yeah. Fairfax and Schubert and all those blokes, you know, John Brass, etc. So he was quite happy to play. He sort of built them to that point where they could, you could then unleash what they had as, you know, an attacking team. <laughs> yeah. So a very smart guy, you know, and he'll be well remembered for as long as rugby league's played, don't mm. And And... And named Coach of the Century, I think, quite aptly. There's, you know. Yeah. Um, so while we're talking about uh, past greats, consider another scenario for me. If you could travel through time back to any game, what do you really wish you had seen? Um, 
that's not a, not a question I've ever really thought about. It's a match that's intrigued me through the years, and it's probably intrigued the side of me, which is his, you know a historian, I suppose, is the uh, Rourke's Drift Test match of 1914 played here in Sydney, which they played Australia and Great Britain play Australia and England played three tests in a week, if you can believe wow. that. Wow. Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday. The RLPA wouldn't be happy with that. No, now, they, wouldn't, they would not. No. <laughs> and it was one all coming into the, um, the third game that was played. It became known as the Rourke's Drift Test after the... Um, it's, it's something that happened in the Zulu Wars in Africa where a, a small British contingent lasted it. You know, oh, yes, hand, OK. Handled, stood again. But um, against all odds, the British um, won the third test when they were down to nine men at one stage. Wow. Ten men for most of the second half, under extreme pressure, and hung on, and sort of did it for England. You know, won, yeah. the, won the test. So, what it just to me would be fascinating to have been there that day, that day to just see what it was like. You know, because you know, there's was... no film, there's nothing, of course. Yeah, because you, know. you can't substitute at that time. Is that right? You get someone gets injured, they're gone. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so, so is that how they got down? They weren't. They didn't have three guys <laughs> sent off. It no, was... there were no send offs. I think from memory, but. Um, some bad injuries and leftovers from the early test, those two early tests too. So I suppose everyone was carrying problems, you know. <laughs> of course. But, um, yeah, to play with nine men in a test match and hold out for a long, long period, you know, it was a very extremely courageous performance, yeah, you know. Wow. Go to England, they still talk about it, you know. <laughs> they probably haven't won that many since, you know. <laughs> Uh, I mean, if I could go back, I'd be going back to the 1989 grand final. And you've written a book uh, about Benny and the great head tape hero, Junior Pierce. Can you explain um, how Junior never won a grand final and then why Benny Elias didn't practice drop goals enough? <laughs> well, I think I've got to say with uh, Junior Pierce, he, to me, he's just an unlucky player. You right. know, he, he deserved to, I think, they're probably the best side that year and mm. they deserved to win it. I can still, you know, it's a great photo of him flopped on the ground. Uh, you know. oh, I don't know if he's got up yet, has he? You know, <laughs> it breaks my heart. I'm not sure, but he, and he, he was, he was dotted by the league on a kangaroo tour, where he should have gone on a kangaroo tour, and uh, he was ruled out by the league. Uh, in, I'm just a bit vague on the. Uh, I'll let you know. Make it up. What date it, it was? <laughs> um, but, but for um, what? Do you remember what for? He, he'd had a knee injury and he was coming back from it. Did a fitness test at Leichhardt Oval. Yeah. In front of the doctor and the, the selectors, and not like Hard Oval was like a, a ground that had been bombed at that stage. It was the end of the season. It was, it was bone dry and it had holes in it and everything. And he stepped in a hole on his on his leg, the the leg that he had trouble with. Then righted himself and continued and did all did everything they wanted, and they ruled him Damn out. It, mm. But there was some politics involved. It would seem yeah. um, other player, another you know, player went into the team, and uh, so Junior missed the boat there, and he wasn't picked for a Test match here. I think it was a centenary. Was a, was a milestone test match anywhere in Sydney right. where he should have been there and he wasn't. So I don't think the game treated him all that well. I mean, he's built a good life and career out of it, mm. but those moments stay with me. Yeah. And the grand final was an unlucky thing, really, you know. The, because you could talk about that forever, I'm sure you could, you know, yeah, whether those players to. should have been taken off or <laughs> yeah. whether the coach did the wrong thing or whatever. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> Benny with the drop goals, I don't know. He didn't miss by much, did he? And no. That, Hit the middle of the bar, I think, didn't it? I mean, it's so romantic. It's kind of great. There's a part of me that thinks it's great that it happened because it, anyone who is not a Balmain fan still loves that grand final. Yeah. Every single year they try yeah. out what are the greatest, so it's this one. But um, I remember as a child my, my parents telling me about it like it was a folktale, you know, Cinderella and all this stuff, and then there was a time that Benny Lice and it hit the crossbow, hit the black dot. It was, you know, yeah. it was perfect, looked great. And right then, in the middle, yeah. 
Unbelievable. Did you cover that game? Did you watch yeah. that game? Yeah, I did. I covered the game. Were you happy yeah. with Canberra? Were you happy for Canberra? Oh, oh, in a way, yeah, they were, um, uh, you know, a liar. They had a, they had a, they had a good, incredible good football team. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah. For Balmain to get on top of them and look like winners, you know, it was a great effort, really. But, um, yeah, I, I, I certainly felt for Balmain, you know, they looked like winners all year. They looked like they were going to do it, you know, and they didn't. And then mm. the up, young upstarts came up, came up and stole it away in the last seconds, you know. And then they went on to win a bunch more. So yeah. for you, though, the, the, the craziness mm. and amazingness of Canberra winning that was more than the the heartbreak and sadness of seeing Junior or Blocker and Sarah miss them. Yeah, yeah. I, I think okay. so. Yeah, I mean, I had some uh, pleasure when I toured. Went away on a tour. I was in England with uh, Chicka Ferguson. You know, I think yeah. a great wing. He scored the winning try. Off a, I don't think he complained after, but he had. I don't think it was even written. But I saw him in the dressing room afterwards, and he pulled a hamstring badly too. Wow! And he stepped off that leg, you know, to score the try. Yeah. So uh, and he was a terrific bloke, you know, and a great winger too. Yeah. But they were good, good fellas in that team, and Don Fernand was around the place, an excellent bloke who I toured with. And um, so I felt sort of happy for them, but I felt regret too for Balmain, you know. I just thought that must, that really hurts, you know, when you're that close. Mm. And it was that close, wasn't it? Benny's kick. Mm. That's <laughs> goes another half inch up, it probably rolls over. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I don't know why I brought it anyway, up. Maybe next year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So if that's a memory um, that you wish you had collected, what would you say is your greatest rugby league memory to date? Okay. Um, I, I, um, I was in England in uh, – th- funnily enough, I think it's probably the – probably the, if I could answer that by saying probably the, the most entertaining, our most outstanding match I ever saw was in England, 1985 Hull versus um, Wigan. With wow. Peter Sterling and Brett Kenny, one on each side. Yep. Chick- Chicka Ferguson played in that game too. Oh, right. A brilliant game, played at Wembley. Just one of those football afternoons, which is just an absolute delight to watch. You know, brilliant tries, scored long tries. Um, and it was an extra thrill being there because of the fact that the Australians being on the field. Kenny got the, um, won the award. And before that, um, before the game too, it sort of started, it was one of those magic days before the game. Um, there might have been a, a lesson or a message t- to the leagues or promotions people anywhere. They, they, uh, Wembley's a sort of a hallowed, you know, place, famous yeah. place for um, different games. But um, they had a parade of England's greatest players, Karelius and all the rest of them, beforehand. Just a very respectful thing done at low key, and um, and it was it was breathtaking. The crowd were dead silent, you know, wow. and there was great acclaim for them and everything. I thought. It was a wonderful piece of promotion. You know, they introduced all these heroes one by one. They do a bit of that here too, I know, but it just worked there somehow. Okay. And that day I, um, I saw I had a bit to do with Brian Bevan, who was uh, the most extraordinary player I ever saw. Uh, well, I only saw him play in a match, a uh, sevens game here in Sydney in 1961. <laughs> but he was the, the freakish winger who went to England. Um, a skinny, you know, you know, probably you've read about him, I'm sure, but a skinny... Um, a toothless bloke in the end, um, <laughs> uh, bandaged up, scored uh, 796 tries at a time when English football was at its peak. Right. Then Harry Bath and all the other fellows said he was just the greatest winger you've ever seen. Wow. But he came out here and played in a um, in a testimonial match for Keith Holman in 1961 and he was then into his late 40s and he scored, I think, four tries that day. <laughs> might, have been, might have been five. Wow. And... Uh, I interviewed him here one day some years after that. He came out here and I took him around to his old haunts in Sydney, you know, all these different places. And uh, 
I saw him for the last time at that match in, in England. And wow. He got into a lift and I got, I got out. Yeah. We shook hands, just said hello, and I never saw him again, you know. Wow. But he's a, he's a mythical figure, you know. Mm. Brian Bevan, if he was here now, I mean, he, he, he's such a tiny little bloke compared with what they are now, but he had a brilliant sidestep and he was a tough bloke too. Right. Trained hard, worked on his sidestep, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And and so the the game with Kenny End and Sterlo would that have been one of the only times they would have played each other because they played State of Origin with each other played Kangaroos played Eels, I think it probably was yeah, yeah wow yeah yeah um, John Muggleton played too <coughs> Parramatta player so it was a good Aussie miss on the field it's the first time they ever played they both had brilliant games yeah it was just a one of those magic afternoons it was a lovely day unusual for London you know but. Uh, <laughs> Bit of sun peeking through, <laughs> yeah. But a terrific day, and uh, just everything seemed to work. You know, occasionally, you know, football's like that. Occasionally, yeah. you get a game that's just a bit of cut above everything else. So, it's a very long answer to your question. That was an excellent it, answer. it sticks in my mind anyway. Well, finally, I mean, it, it, listening to you, you can tell you absolutely love the game. So, what does it have that has kept you committed to it for a lifetime? Um, I, th- I think I had that, whatever it is, I had it from the start. I think mm. I, I, when I started going to East matches in the, uh, you know, early 60s, late 50s, whatever, early 60s probably. But um, there's something about the hardness of it. Um, and I think in those days, teams used to shake hands before the game. I like that sort of a respect thing. Yep. And uh, I like what happens now after the game where there's genuine, um, you know, con- commiserations, and, yeah, yeah. friendship and all yeah. that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I came from pretty much a working-class background. My father was killed in the war and my mother and grandmother had to bring up my sister and I in a rented house and, you know, things were tough. But I, I just thought it was... It just grew sort of with me, uh, the, in my mind, as the game, a real good, hard, working-class game, you know, which I liked and uh, with good qualities about it too, you know, a sense of fair play and great um, players of wonderful ability. You know, I was... You know, awoken to the Paskins and then even Keith Barnes. I was there. I was at Leichhardt one day when I think he kicked 11 goals. Yeah, right. And they won 22. <laughs> so, yeah, only did, I don't think Belmont scored another point, you know, mm. but um, he was just a genius goal kicker and a lovely man, you know, who I got to know in later years. So, um, yeah, it's still, you know, my, it's a long way ahead of anything else was my game, but I'm just chosen to be a little bit. Further detached from it than I than I have been, and as I said, I've had my turn pretty much. You know, I had a really good innings. I'm happy to write about it occasionally. I don't do that so much now, but um, I've enjoyed doing that, being able to tell some of the stories and to uncover some of the yards and to straighten up some of the the uh, things, discrepancies or things that have been presented wrongly over the years. So yeah, it's been um, it's been a good part of my life. Well, we thank you for it. Uh, uh, anyone listening on, on that note, enjoy your week, uh, your sport for another week and don't forget to find many of Ian Head's books as you can, really, and read them as much as you possibly can because you'll be a much better human being for it. Thanks, Ian, um, for coming. Thanks, Charles. Great pleasure, mate. Great to talk to you. Thanks. And, uh, thank also, you, Paul. Yeah, thanks, Mercha. You yeah. beat me to it. Now you make me sound bad, but thanks, Ian. <laughs> Our wonderful producer. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a jazz fan, yeah. He's got to be all right. Well, he's a jazz. He's better. He's more than that. That's right. Uh, so we'll talk to you next time, sports best friends. Yeah.